the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. Episode 28, The Island. There's a story that's predetermined to rumble through our adventure soon. Not a story, exactly. More like a theme. Or an idea. Ideas give rise to nations and infect the healthy with death. Ideas are the undercurrent to life itself. Ideas are the future, and the past is full of the consequences of ideas gone by. Jennifer Dash, like every youngling on Earth, every child who has yet to resign herself to the fatalism of a world beyond one's control, beyond one's grasp, had thought only minimally about the concept of identity, though she'd already rebranded herself multiple times. Jennifer Dash, Jennifer Calling, Jen Free. She'd not taken the time to evaluate what these namesake changes entailed. She'd never bothered to embrace their representations. She'd never worried herself to self-realize that she held a certain conviction. This. Different venues of life require self-change. One personality is better than another, and another is better than one other in certain particular situations. Jen had accepted a chameleon's life in a de facto sort of manner. When she left Louisiana in search of an answer to life, she did not set out to reinvent herself, yet here she was, surmounting a vertical island cliff with what looked like a buzz cut in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere with three suspicious crewmates. She was Jennifer Dash, the once-imprisoned double agent of Magical Kingdom, the Patriots, and Lilith Babbitt, now scaling these island walls as Jennifer Free, a mercenary hand, shipwrecked off the adventure schooner Orion. The walls of the island broke off under one's feet into assorted black dust. Merkel explained that it must be a form of molten ash. The island was a volcano, and, according to Merkel, a recently active one. A silence cascaded over the foursome. If the island was a volcano, an active one, then this wasn't going to be an island paradise. They weren't going to be knocking coconuts together anytime soon. There's a story that's soon to be told. Not a story, exactly. More like a theme. Or an idea. The idea involves the simplest of concepts. So, very simple. Number the people. Remove their names. The land will no longer bear the names of old. The Carters, the Stacks, the Smiths, the Youngs, the Miyazakis, the Disneys, the Robertsons, the Corleys, the Magalies, the Burundis, the Slavics, the Bulgars, the Indians, the Celts, the Rus, the Armenians, the Assyrians, the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, the Romans, the followers of Baal and Balaam. The earth will spew them out, vomit them up like rotten meat. 
The names of old will vanish into dust and cloud. Every countenance will fail, every creed fall by the wayside. And there will no longer be selfish tears, for the self will cease to be. This is the idea, this is the belief. This is the story of Pish Taco. That's Pish, not Fish, and the very beginnings of his master stroke. Enter and beware. The night sky was trying to bless Jen's group with moonlight, but persnickety clouds kept veiling the near full moon. As the clouds passed, before other floating giants covered the glare of the lesser light, Jen could see just how dark and bare this wasteland was. The cliffs had no features whatsoever. They hung there, an ever-vigilant dark monolith. And yet, beyond the dark side, trudging on the dark ash, Jennifer Dash, Miles Fall, Alexandra Keitel, and Merkel made progress. They slowly ascended and slowly conquered these dark hills. But the clouds tapered over the large moon as they mounted the summit, betraying any opportunity to purview what lay before them. Now, on the plateau, however, what they could make out was not reassuring. There's nothing here, said Lex. How could anyone live here? Miles said. Jen peeped up. Is this the right island? I don't see how it could be. We don't see anything. We don't know anything. Merkel grumbled gruffly and marched ahead of the other three. Although there wasn't much to look at, the island's strength was making itself known in the form of its vastness. The plateau extended out far past one's imagination. Jen kept narrowing her eyes, trying her best to fight the darkness and catch a glimpse of the island's end. No luck. The flat, formless mass betrayed any dimensions. Although the plateau was as flat as a pancake, with not even any large stones to trip over, Miles, Lex, and Jen took ginger steps on the alien island. Merkel, by contrast, marched with relentless zeal, as if he were a war general, making claim to a new territory. Then came the fall. While our story involves many characters, Miles and Lex perhaps chief among them, this is, and always will be, a story about Jennifer. And so it is that the fall must start with her. It was sudden, and so unexpected that it might as well have been an earthquake or an alien's tractor beam. Jen took a step, and was her right foot, but the ground just wasn't there. Jen would later remember it in a similar way as to when you take an extra step up a flight of stairs, only to stumble and realize that that last step doesn't actually exist. Your foot just seems to fall straight through that thing you were so certain existed. Jen's foot fell through the step, fell through the air. In a desperate panic, as she fell, Jen flailed out for help. She reached out and pulled on the right shoulder of Miles' fall like a drowning person. Miles, in return, lost his balance, fell backwards towards Jen, or rather, towards where Jen once was, and in his own astonishment, grabbed Lex's hand, who also then fell back toward the thrust of Miles' pleading discombobulation. 
Jennifer Dash fell. Her stomach dropped. The shock was too much for her. Survival tactics didn't pipe in. She fell far enough to break her back. She didn't pivot. She didn't try to arrange her body in any sort of way to break her fall more gracefully. Jennifer Dash does not have the instincts of a cat. Jen, Miles, and Lex all fell some immeasurable distance and landed on a tightly coiled netting. The fabric, whatever it so happened to be made out of, leached itself onto the body. Jen and the others found themselves suspended in a hole, a deep hole, imprisoned in a netting not unlike a spider's web. Jen lay entangled on her back, staring up at the sky far above her trench. Her left arm lay pinned somehow, somewhere, under Lex's stomach, while her right arm was twisted back behind her head. Miles, when he fell, twisted in such a fashion as to arrive in the netting headlong, his head by, or perhaps beneath, Jen's legs. His legs, then, were left sprawling vertically up towards the horizon. Lex was probably the most comfortable of the bunch, having landed flat face down on her stomach. She was the first to realize what had happened. Merkel! Merkel! Help! We fell! We fell! Lex cried. Miles hopelessly tried to rearrange himself. No avail. It was like being trapped in time. The webbing so embroidered itself to them, so latched itself to their flesh, that any sort of rearrangement was a futile dream. Jen had taken, of course, her backpack with her when she vacated the Orion. In it, besides fifty people whom I pity, two tightly bound ensembles of clothes, were several granola bars, three cans of fruit, a dozen or more packages of beef jerky, and a chocolate bar. Miles and Lax also carried with them supplies of food and drink, but what good were they if all three of them remained entombed in island webbing? Jen, being the only one of the three with a view toward the pit's entrance, made out the silhouette of Merkel. Hey, Jen called up to Merkel. We fell. She couldn't see Merkel's face to judge his expression. Can you move it all? Merkel said. I can't, Lex said. Me neither, Jen said after trying to wiggle her right arm free. Negative, Alpha Rider, Miles said. Anyone hurt? Anything broken? I can't tell, Lex said. I think we're so tightly packed in that whatever's broken, if anything, is molded in place. I don't think there's any immediate cause for concern, though, Miles concluded. Okay, I'll find something. Jen watched the monkey surgeon's form vanish. He left us, Jen whispered. What? Lex said. He left us. No, no, Merkel, Merkel, don't leave us. Merkel, you punk, come back here. Lex yelled. Calm down, Lex, Miles said. I don't think there's much he can do here. It's better for him to see if he can find something further up. Further up? What do you expect he's going to find? We fell into a trap, Miles. A trap devised on a remote, godless island. The only thing to find is the monster who made the trap. I don't think we want Pishtaco to find us. He might be able to find a branch or limb or something to get us out of here. Jen, you can see up from where you're at? Yeah. How far down would you estimate we are? As dark as it was, it was hard to gauge distances at all. Merkel's outline seemed tiny when it overshadowed the hole. Jen's initial thought was that they must be 25, 30 feet down. But then she tried to track the darkness up. She inched up the sides of the walls with her eyes. She used Miles' legs as a measuring rod. She guessed Miles' leg was two feet long from knee to toe. 
Jen measured that seven or eight needed toes would reach the mouth of the cave. I think maybe 15 feet. Quiet, Lex whispered harshly. Do you hear that? At first, Jen heard nothing. There was a breeze audible from the mouth of the hole. Jen actually thought the sound of the wind blowing over their pit in the earth was rather pleasant. But then she heard it. What is it? Jen asked. Maybe an insect? In, in, insects? No, that's no insect. It's bigger than that. Ah! <laughs> the two ladies tried to suppress screams themselves, but alas, squeaks came out. What is it? Lexi smiled. You saw something. Just, just, just a shadow. What sort of shadow? A memory flashed in Jen's mind. Once upon a time, she was dying. Poisoned. She was getting a blood transfusion in Mrs. Moose's mansion. The moose had left. Left the room. But there was something there. A shadow. Some kind of presence. Jen had turned, twisting to look at the absence. The lightless one. That's how Jennifer Dash got covered in her own blood. She was trying to spot that shadow. And now, somehow... Had the shadow returned? Maybe it was death. Had death come for Jennifer once more? Who else could find her in this desolation? What had she seen on that day? What had she really seen? It... I think it... It must have been some sort of rat. Or mole. How big? Lex asked. Big. So it was a rodent of unusual size? Yeah, I think it was. Jen had never watched The Princess Bride, so the reference went over her head, but she appreciated the levity nonetheless. Guys, is there any chance that this... that we're not trapped in a man-made contraption? You think we're not in a Swiss Family Robinson pirate trap? Lex said. And thankfully, Jen got that reference. Is there any chance that the shadows, the... the rodents, that they made the netting? Lex responded decisively. There's nothing in nature that can make something this complex. This big. No. It's not possible. Silence fell on the troop. Alexandra Keitel's assessment didn't feel reassuring. If Pish Taco was some sort of mad scientist, if he was able to fashion together grotesque, plague-bearing griffins, then maybe he could make web-slinging rodents. It wasn't out of the realm of possibility. Right? <sighs> Where's Merkel? He should be back by now. If he hasn't found anything of use yet, there's no need for him to come back. Sure there is. We need to know he's okay. We need to know there's someone up there looking out for us. We need to have a watchman. What if Pishtaco comes with a band of cannibals? How long until sunrise? Jen asked. Why? Well, I'll be able to see out once the sun comes in. Maybe there'll be something useful to spy out. I wouldn't hold my breath for sunlight, Miles said. Why not? What happens when morning comes? Most probably, whoever made this trap comes to see what he caught. Can't you do something, Miles? Lex asked. Like what? I don't know. Use your superpowers or something. Superpowers? You know, your mind-reading omnipotent powers. 
Being perceptive and knowing some mental gymnastics does not particularly assess me in climbing out of a net. Don't you have a knife or something? Merkel does. Merkel's got a machete. Uh, all I got is a book of matches in my pocket. Can you reach them? Can you? Frustrated silence. No one was getting at anything. Okay, okay. How about this? What's your favorite memory? Miles asked. How's that helpful? Lex snarked. It's just something to talk about. Something to take our minds off the current predicament. How about it, Jen? Got a favorite memory? Atticus Further. He was at once the most comforting person Jen had ever met, and the most unpredictable. How could that be? How could someone who is good, who is kind and warm, also be unpredictable? That seemed like a contradiction. Okay, yeah. So, this one time I needed makeup. Really bad. I went to the store and got some. But on my way out, I ran into this person I really liked. We sat down, and I didn't want this person to know that I had this makeup. So I stuffed it in my back pocket. But it had a sharp edge. It was cutting into my butt. I tried to rearrange my sitting position, but no matter how I fidgeted, it was still sticking me. This is your best memory? Lex asked incredulously. Well, it's the first one that came to mind. You've had a miserable life, Jen. Just listen, Lex, Miles said. Go on, Jen. Anyway, this person was telling me his thoughts on this book, and for some reason I was completely enraptured. We had this, like, tremendous conversation. Ah, the famous transcendent conversation. Huh? Ah, well, I remember asking my dad once how he knew he wanted to marry my mom, how he knew she was the right one. He said that one day they had this conversation that just kept getting better and better. It kept going up and up. He described it as a transcendent conversation, the perfect connection wherein both parties are adding simultaneously to a masterpiece. Like a a masterpiece conversation. It's like painting a portrait together, but just talking. Oh. Sorry to interrupt. Go, go on, finish the story. Okay, well, there's not much to tell. I just... I remember feeling this unreal sensation. I was in a good deal of physical pain, and all I had to do to get rid of the physical pain was to stand up, to to leave him. But the conversation was so comforting, so all-absorbing, that the pain didn't even matter. I don't know, I haven't ever experienced anything like that, before or since. That's really beautiful, Jen. Thanks. Your turn. My turn. Okay, let's see. I'm young. Maybe three or four. Five, max. It's a summer's day. We're on the beach. Me, Manda, all together, I'm searching for shells. There aren't many, just a few here and there. But that's not bad. It's not a problem. It makes finding them all the more special. I find little ones, lots of fragments. Pieces, mostly. Da's holding a paper bag. I put all the fragments in the bag. Of course, I'm, I'm holding both Ma and Da's hands. They're doing that thing, you know, that thing that happy parents do with their kids where they're swinging me up and down. It's it's wonderful. And then a strong wind comes, a cold wind. We would get those. So we decided to go. The beach the beach isn't as nice when that strong wind comes. You get sand in your eyes, and it gets colder, and it's just not quite as nice. 
but I want to look into the paper bag my da is holding. I want to choose one seashell to remember this day. I'm hoping that maybe I put one perfect shell in the bag. Even though I know I didn't find anything perfect. I reach in. I feel around with my little fingers. I can't find anything whole. It's all just shards. Maybe some really tiny ones, but nothing perfect. I'm a little sad, but not too much. It's been a good day. I tell Dodge just to dump the bag out. It's okay I didn't find the perfect shell. Then Ma says something. I don't remember what. Dog gives the bag to her. She reaches in with her hand. She's smiling at me. Da's smirking. He's in on it. He knows what's going to happen. I stare up at her, waiting for the magic to come. And it does. Ma pulls out a giant, enormous shell, like the size of my hand. It's a gorgeous, conical, pearly white shell of perfection. I let out a yip of glee. Ma hands it to me. I rub it in my hands, not yet knowing that magic isn't real. You know, in that moment, I believe Ma made this shell. I truly believe she somehow made all the shards and pieces come together. She swirled them up somehow in that bag. She swirled them with the tips of her magic fingers and made this perfect gift. Just for me. That's my best memory. Wow. You use the word perfect a lot, Lex. Yeah? That's good. That's uh, a good Ebenezer to hold on to. What's that? Jen asked. An Ebenezer is a memory that keeps you, you. I don't understand. When you face events or trials or things like this that threaten to change you, things like, you know, being stuck in a net in a hole in some godforsaken island, these things threaten to change your personality or change your identity somehow. So you hold on to these Ebenezers that remind you of who you are, or at least who you want to be. Okay, Fa, you're up, said Lex. What's your favorite memory, Miles? And Fa told his. Well, he told a story, a very intricate, long story, that put both women at ease. It calmed them as they lay stuck in the hole, stuck in that unknown webbing. He told them what they needed to hear to not worry about their troubles. And in the telling of this tale, Miles Fa calmed down too. The story went on and on. So long, in fact, that the sun rose with very little notice from the threesome, until the noises returned. Louder and louder now. Lex could see the clearest of the three. Enough light cascaded down the hole to reveal that they lay entangled in a mesh coffin four feet above the well-like floor. The ground below appeared black and papery ashy, not unlike everything else surrounding them. Look, look, Lex whispered vehemently. There's a hole. At the base of the hole, at what appeared to be the far left side from Lex's viewpoint, a hole no more than six, seven inches in diameter, existed and appeared to be shimmering. It's coming through that hole, the rodent, Lex said too loudly. They held their breath, awaiting whatever travesty revealed itself from the little hole at the bottom of the big hole. A backpack. A backpack plopped through the hole.
Then, a whoosh of air and a sweet sigh of relief. Merkel had returned. Once through, Merkel rummaged through his backpack, snagged a pocket knife, and cut the threesome through the meshing. The affair took an hour or longer. Getting free of the netting was tedious work. Once free, however, the four members of the sunken Orion sat at the bottom of the ditch, this earthy abyss, exhausted from the evening's events. They learned quickly that escaping up was useless. There simply was no escape up. You simply couldn't climb the hole. The island was made of strange stuff. Anytime any pressure was applied to the walls, anytime anyone tried to climb out, the earth gave way like quicksand. It was like the island was made of sinking sand that somehow, unless messed with, held its frame. As for Merkel, he explained that he'd searched the island far and wide. He said he'd just about traversed its four corners. There was nothing on the island. It appeared to be utterly uninhabited. There were no buildings, no trees, no plants, no food of any kind, and no pishtaco. When he just about circled around, he hit a trap door drop similar to the one the three fell into. The only difference being that there was no net in the hole he fell into, and there was a small opening in the base of his hole. It was too narrow for him, so he needed to scrape his way through it. As he battled inch by inch through the minuscule tunnel, he began to hear a voice. A little further, and he knew it to be Miles' voice. I figure when someone comes for us, as long as we hear them coming, we can crawl into the tunnel. At the very least, that'll buy us a little time. That's reassuring, Lex said. The good news is there's no way this tunnel is organic, or man-made in any way. So, what is it? By the pattering, I'd bet it was made by some kind of mole. How is that good news? means we have a food source waiting to be caught. Jen peered out at the sun now cresting just above the hole, wondering what the next few days could possibly entail. Hey everybody, Solve the World is produced by myself, Dante Stack. All the sound effects and music we use for this program are under Creative Commons licenses and can be found on our show notes page at DanteStack.com. I'd like to thank freesound.org and freemusicarchive.org for that material. Hey guys, if you like the program, please help me sustain it by writing a review on iTunes, sharing this program with a friend, or donating on our donations page at DanteStack.com. Thanks. See you next week. As one may suspect, the island Jen's trapped on is not as uninhabited as it first appears. But for the weak of mind and spirit, it will prove to be just as inhospitable as imaginable. We're still weeks from meeting the numbered man, but his presence is now louder than ever. There are many princes and rulers of the world, but the numbered man may prove to be the most audacious in his ambitions. The world has come into being through imagination, but imagination too can be corrupted. For Jen to solve the world, she'll need to peer down the depths of imagination's endless tunnels, and the numbered man's island holds the key to unlocking all those mysteries. Jen and company will weigh the mass of imagination, as well as starvation and desperation, next time on Solve the World.